Welcome to Scaling Impact, where we decode how entrepreneurs are harnessing the power of the UN Sustainable Development Goals to create remarkable and impactful businesses that drive transformation on a global and local human scale. We explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders and entrepreneurs can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anderson Manilson, global futurist, EO Sydney impact champion and father, and your co-host with Lisa Andrews for Scaling Impact. Welcome to Sydney EO's global podcast, Scaling Impact, where I am joined today by Joanna Marsh. Joanna, great to have you on today's Scaling Impact show. Thank you very much. So happy to be here. Just a bit of our pedigree, Joanna, you have a kind of an interesting hybrid role at the moment. You're both the general manager for advanced analytics and innovation in real estate at Investor Property Group, uh, but you're also heading up Ex Omnia as well. And of course, today's theme is around UN Sustainable Development Goal number 11, which is focused on sustainable cities and communities. And of course, at the very heart of sustainable cities and community, no doubt, is real estate, houses, buildings. And I'm super curious to see what your sort of data analytical mind might have in terms of insights and foresights in in this space. But uh, before we go down that route, um, let me just understand, you know, people think of, you know, bricks and mortar. What's this digital layer and, and how, how does what Investor and Ex Omnia do fit into sustainable cities and communities? Really, if we think about, you know, we're animals, the humans that live in the built environment. So inside of real estate, we, you know, we work, we play, we have Christmas, our babies crawl across the floors in um, residential development. And so, it's kind of this infrastructure and layer that we live our lives in. And so that's the built environment. And then in order to build design and create that environment and then to operate it ongoingly, there's an entire world of the real estate industry behind that. And so just like you would be delivering, you know, I don't know, Amazon or Uber Eats delivers your food to you and the infrastructure needed for that, there's an entire data layer and I guess, human layer to build and operate real estate. And so we think about it like a digital twin of the built environment. You can kind of think about it like the metaverse or you know the internet. And that's how we optimize, we build, we you know, really create environments that, that we humans love. What's been the issues traditionally with the built environment in terms of environmental impact, in terms of the lack of sustainability, I don't know, the, the carbon emissions of concrete, like how do you, like what, what's the carbon footprint of the built environment at the moment and, and, and why, why do cities in a sense need to move from being dumb cities or communities to being smart cities and communities? So the built environment historically hasn't been particularly conscious of things like carbon and um, different elements inside of ESG, and that's changing. So with big capital requirements, there's trillions of dollars of capital that have signed up to, you know, different responsibility, investment goals, and different things like that. And 
because of that capital requirement, it's causing a very big conversation in real estate with investment managers on what we should do and how we should do it and then how we should report on it. So everyone has targets. You know, we've got you go to net zero by X date and you do these sorts of things. And so then it's how are we going to get there? And so inside of the ESG criteria, there's a raft of different ways that you can play. Um, for example, if you look at climate risk, the CSIRO, there's 60 different climate risk factors. And you might choose for Australia, you might choose, you know, six to 10 that are relevant specifically to our climate, like extreme heat, things like that. Then you would go, how do I create the buildings such that we can manage extreme heat? And it might not be about actually, you know, fire hazard, but it might be about can our HVAC, can our um, air conditioning units keep up with the way that the climate is changing? So then we look as a investment manager and go, where do we spend our pennies to renovate our buildings and our built environment such that we can mitigate these climate factors? So there's a lot of complexity inside of ESG and the built environment because you look at environmental, but then you look at social as well, right? And how do you create infrastructure that is fair and equitable, affordable housing? How do we make sure there's sufficient you know, childcare, social cohesion? All of those elements also factor into kind of the ESG investment decisions in real estate. So tell me a little bit just briefly about what investor does and, and what they think about it. Because I'm, I'm assuming there's a question here in terms of the, the real estate portfolio or, or the investments and tell me if I'm wrong, um, where you're kind of going, hey, how climate ready is a particular development or if it's a, you know, I don't know, greenfield site, a brownfield site, et cetera. But like, is, is that the sort of you know, big question in terms of climate risk, or when you think about your your future portfolio, what you invest in, how how do you make these decisions um, based upon? You said the sixty different criteria, but um, how how do you think about the future of buildings and and where you might want to spend your dollars? So we have a uh, head of ESG, Margot, who. Uh, leads this charge for Investa, and every building has a strategy, an ESG strategy. So the existing portfolio, what we're looking at every year, along as you would with standard financial forecasting, we're looking at ESG forecasting. So if we've promised to get a certain level of or a certain metric of ESG criteria, then it's how do we track to that through the budgets and the teams? And so it's fully integrated with our financial asset strategies. And that it has to be, because otherwise you have kind of two different people trying to manage an asset. So that's at the asset level. Then you roll up to the fund level. And we again have commitments at the fund level and the portfolio level. And then you have commitments at the investor level. So you, there's a um, an extreme, I guess, focus in a good way on how do we deliver on all of those different levels to those different stakeholders. The second part of your question is really, I call it ESG arbitrage. So if you're looking to buy buildings, right? And if you think about it before, you might buy a house and you might think, oh, I can add an extra bedroom or I can put some marble tile and I can get a pop on the value. That's financial and you know physical arbitrage. ESG arbitrage is, okay, where can I see that I can upgrade the neighbor's ratings or change this energy efficiency part of this component to drive the value that way. And that's where the investors, and I know Investa, we look at that as well. 
when you're talking to investors and and people who are interested in 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 the future and you know their their network you know net wealth or at the you know at the institutional level in terms of their you know their successes or you know and someone else building a, a balanced portfolio etc are you seeing more demand from investors in in uh, ESG compliant or uh, assets that are sort of future proof or gets all the ticks of approval of various independent bodies is that is that a trend you're seeing at the moment or is that is that hype uh, that sort of vaporware it's definitely a trend and what I would say is it's getting increasingly robust so maybe a few years ago it was self-reporting and nice to have and now the DDQ the questionnaires coming from the investors are long very detailed and complex. And it is now a competitive advantage to be able to um, not only have the data and actually do and manage the portfolios that way, but to be able to report on it, have the confidence and clarity and governance around what we're doing. So it won't be an option for, you know, it's not optional anymore. And it's going to continue to become more like financial reporting where regulation flows in, you actually have to, it's no longer self-reported. You know, I know you you sort of straddle this interesting space between what I would call the analog, physical, and the and the virtual, the digital, and 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 certainly, you know, we've we've known for many years that um, everything that can be connected eventually will be connected to the internet, and so buildings are, are a case of, I guess, the internet of things, um, and in, the internet of things has always often been heralded as this huge opportunity to to connect assets to 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 know what they're doing with their uh with their you know with their heating system or you know how much solar energy they're generating or you know when we should turn on and off the the heating the cooling you know the the aircon etc like what what are the opportunities uh, that you see to connect buildings and and, and make them and, and communities smart like what can you give us a quantum or, or a sense or some examples of how you know smart buildings and communities can help us not just you know save on our pennies uh, but also you know make a real dent in the you know climate debate? It's a good question. So absolutely, there are sensors. So um, one of the Investa buildings, um, one of the most highly censored digital twin buildings in the world, has twenty two thousand sensors chucking off data all the time. Right. So you start to get this real time digital twin of your buildings. So that's highly valuable because you can then cross merge it with other parts of data. And that's the real thing because by itself, the internet of things tells you some things, but they're actually, it's not that interesting until you take weather data, until you take human movement data, until you take all these other realms of data. And then you start to look at the insights and the real deep research, which has been going on in the hedge funds for a long time, but we're bringing it to real estate. So that's the kind of level we can actually start to make an impact. So a good example is affordable housing, right? If you have, I don't know, $4 billion and you want to deploy it into affordable housing, there's a lot of rules of thumb that you would say about where to put that housing and who are these people you're building for and all these different things. With the data now, so you would pull all of the public data, census data, income data. So you would do all that, right? Um, which when I say that, um, my data scientists and engineers are rolling their eyes listening to this going, don't say it like it's easy. Anyway, you do all that and you put it together and then you start to look at crime rates. You start to look at all of that stuff. And then you start to look at cost of living. You start to So you start to build up this profile 
that allows you to see where to best deploy that $4 billion to make the biggest impact for affordable housing against your targets on what you want to do and who you want to serve. Commute times, all these different things. So the Internet of Things, the IoT sensors are a very important part, especially for internal data. When should you replace the chiller? Is this fan optimized for you know, the best kind of efficiency and length of life? Those kind of decisions. The investment decisions and the kind of bigger societal impact decisions are much broader than just the building sensors. And that's where the complexity comes in. I mean, I often hear that um, the the family home is, you know, tragically and sadly, and, and maybe partly because we spend so much time there, but also partly out of other social inequity and, and other uh, types of reasons that the you know the family home is the most dangerous place, uh, where for for women, for children, and and for the elderly in terms of where you look at you know physical injury and even death. Um, I mean just just know from from having young kids how much you know childproofing we're trying to do, uh, and despite that we don't always get it right. So um, you know certainly I, I can think of the smart home being you know, quite humane in terms of, you know, preventing or even alerting someone to, to you know, say an elderly person having a fall or, you know, wearable technologies like this, you know, measuring your, your gait and might even predict something before you're about to have a fall. Um, I mean, in a, in a similar vein, are there things we can do with, with buildings that from a sort of predictive maintenance perspective or any other way to, to actually help us achieve uh, achieve our targets. I mean, you, you've sort of alluded to energy efficiencies, et cetera, but like how do how do smart cities and communities actually make us more, you know, humane in a sense and, and, and get us closer to this, you know, planet-centric targets that we now have? It's a good question. So there's an entire wellness um, world that we can look at. So this is the question of how, say, say an office building, let's pick office. How do you return the human home to your kids and your family in better condition than you get them, right, in the morning. And how do you earn this commute? How do we make it such that we're making people healthier? And there's a lot of work on how you can do that from sensor data to all these different things, um, wearables, right? Looking at things like just surfaces, and what calms people down, biophilic and biodynamic design. Even such uh, looking at the seasons passing over time has a biological rhythm on humans, looking at horizons. Um, these sorts of things, we bring that into design and a lot of the good architects do this extremely well. And it makes kind of, and human size and level spaces so the occurrence isn't, you know, the high rises in Hong Kong where you're looking kind of at the battery hen sort of uh, world there. So there's a lot about that. And then there's a lot of, if you look back to the data, there's a lot about what should we actually put in our environment. So in our lobbies, say office buildings, right? Um, you could put a lot of different things. And so the question is, what do we put in there that actually really adds to the value? So do you put a library maybe that everybody can use? Do you put you know, spaces that people can work? Do you put um, social enterprise cafes? And that answer is very much determined on the microclimate and the micro um, users or, or humans, but also the other businesses in the area. Is there a childcare? Is there not? Is it safe? So really looking and using the data to look at 
we have the stewardship of the built environment. What can we add that's actually going to make a difference in the hyper locality versus kind of what's going to make the most money from the NLA perspective or what's going to make you know, standard pump and dump of XYZ. So that's where the and I know Investa and also, you know, all of our peers or a lot of our peers in real estate are starting to look there is it's not just about financial return or risk reduction. It's about the impact measurements. I'm fascinated by the, in a sense, what I'm hearing now in terms of hybrid work. And, and of course, throughout the pandemic, we saw, you know, a flight from central business districts uh, back into, you know, people's homes and, um now, of course, there's this, you know, de you know, desperate uh, measures being taken by corporations to get people back into the office, uh, as you as you allude to, kind of earning the commute. How do you actually make make the, you know, the workday one that's, you know, fulfilling and maybe even re-energizing, etc. But how do you earn earn that privilege of having someone spend an hour each way to 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 physically turn up in the office? Have you seen any? I mean, have you seen any carbon impacts on this like work from home movement? Do you think it's it's here to stay? Do you think I you know ultimately people will just go back to work, or or do you think that this was a a real uh, structural shift in terms of how work gets done? And and then secondly, you know what what are the what are the carbon effects of uh, of people working not from corporate real estate offices but maybe from from, from their homes if if that's the case. It's a good question. I would say we don't have enough data. I don't have enough data to answer it decisively. It's more of a, we're watching the way our people are returning to work. And what's happening from all of our research is that people are coming back in a hybrid fashion and they're coming back for specific things. So I know, you know, in our world of innovation, we have to be together physically to drive innovation. I saw, I saw a lack of, um, over the COVID lockdowns, we, we were missing some of the edge of innovation. And so we brought, we came back early for those components of work. And then we don't in other ways, right? And that's just my, my teams and my example. Um, you know, in our startup, we do a lot of FaceTime and that's because the pace of innovation has to be so fast that we can't afford the lag of the asynchronous work. So I, the answer is kind of, I think it depends. Um, and it depends on your role and your team and kind of what we're doing um, in order to do that. So, and then the individual work and everything, of course, that can be anywhere. So it's just figuring that out. And I think it's really hyper-personal to not only the person, but the role and the team, and then what we're trying to accomplish in the world. So we don't have the data yet to really nailed that down, but we're seeing a lot of people very much using office space and using it quite intensely um, and with a lot of gratitude as well, like after being at home for a while. So that's, you know, my experience and my teams and things like that. Um, I don't know. The real answer is I also don't know the carbon impact. I, I can hypothesize around commutes versus not commute and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I haven't seen the data, the statistics on that one, but it would be interesting to look it up. It's fascinating that, 
you know, during during COVID, um, I mean, this is this is not a true statement, but there was a there was a sense um, that everybody went out and bought another car because you know if they were ever going to commute in the future again, they sort of started shunning public transport and you know the one point five meter rule and and all, and all the rest. Um, so people went out, bought a car that obviously contributed to to, to carbon emissions. There's a huge supply chain shortage in the global automotive industry. And so as people start going back to work, um, you know, today it might be two or three days uh, a week. But again, you know, you, you, you just add and scale this up and you go, okay, well, people used to take public transport. Now they want to sit alone in their own little bubble again. Like what's that going to do to congestion and, and pollution? And because the reality is that 99% of urban dwellers today are breathing polluted air. And so again, the built environment, interfaces with, with with transport and I'm just thinking like what are there are there smarter ways to do things or what what, what are the, some of the concerns around people's return to work if it happens yeah and I think it does rely on a couple of different sets of behaviors that are probably conflicting so exactly right do I want to sit next to this person closely in public transport so how does that impact that and then also how good is the technology getting right the better the technology gets the faster the more real time the more immersive it gets then the gap between i'm in with you in person versus with you over you know vr ar those sorts of things gets smaller and smaller so i think that also has an impact because pretty soon it flips flips over the friction of coming in or not coming in so I, we are pulling some transport data, absolutely. So we're seeing that. I mean, the other thing that employers can do, and I see a lot of you know our tenants and our customers, and we're, we're doing this in Investa, is you know you do you do swing start times and finishes and things like that to basically avoid the crush of the standard commute times, and people do feel more comfortable with that. So I think that's another option um, as well. So yeah, I think there's conflicting human behavior here. Have you got um have you got a sort of a gold standard or uh, just in terms of your passion of 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 data analytics, you know, smart buildings and um a global view of of communities and cities? Like what's the gold standard in terms of sustainable cities? Is there is there a city or is there a country, is there a community that we should all learn about or, or keep front of mind as we as we rethink our own buildings, our own communities? So different cities and communities do things better than others. So I would say there's not one standard. One I really like is Tel Aviv and Israel, one of the most connected and data-driven cities um, globally, made it very easy for them to push out the vaccine first in the world to be fully vaccinated. Um, they have a large amount of data and it is integrated. Now, they don't have a huge population. I think it's around 800,000 in that particular city. So you go, well, that's easier to manage. Um, but down to you can book trash removals, all that sort of thing, uh, parking spots, municipal parking spots all through the app. And then they can use that data to figure out where to next build and things like that. So I think the innovation in Israel in general and specifically in Tel Aviv, I look to that quite a bit, as well as the public partner, private partnership, university component ecosystem in Israel because really a lot of this analytics is done well inside hedge funds, is becoming more and more um, available in the big end of town real estate, not yet in the long tail. And it's really not done very well at all 
kind of in more impact social and in kind of non-corporate environments or non-entrepreneurial you know entrepreneurial environments. So the opportunity is to take that and then actually apply it over here and make it accessible and affordable. UN Sustainable Development Goal, just to kind of, you know, take it from, from, from this sort of big meta metaverse or meta theme, um, blue sky thinking and sort of concretize it for, for the entrepreneurs and members and future members of EO that are listening to the show. I mean, UN Sustainable Development Goal number 11 is all about making cities and human settlements both inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. And certainly, you know, technology and real estate technology, uh, prop tech uh, is going to be a component of that. But if we think about inclusivity, safety, resilience, and sustainability, what are some things that you can imagine that um, you know small business owners or entrepreneurs can do when they thinking about making their home smarter as part of a smart community or where they might put um, their offices and what to do to their offices to to make those more sustainable or even you know picking a geolocation like what what are what are some of the thoughts that you might have that you can share with an entrepreneur thinking about how they make their you know, their lives and their, maybe their commutes between office and home, it's more sustainable. And, and, and what are some of, the, some, of, some of the hacks we should be thinking about implementing in our businesses? One thing I would do is I would track what, what you and your teams do, like kind of in the days and weeks. Where do you go? What do you do? Because that starts to give you some data around what kind of environments you need. How much hybrid working do you need? How much on-site with customers do you need? Where are your people? Where are they commuting from? Like that kind of initial, just looking at what is going on in your life. Where are you taking the kids to school or to daycare? How's it working basically? Because that then starts you to you to be able to design kind of your, you can start to innovate. So you can either go activity-based environment. So certain things require certain support and a physical environment is part of that. So for example, if you need whiteboard space with your team, that means you need a room that they can all get to that has a whiteboard. And probably you want to think about what if someone can't come or doesn't want to come. So you need now a screen and you need to manage a hybrid environment. And then you probably need a tech layer or something like Miro or which is an online whiteboard platform. There's other ones too. But a way of managing the interface between the hybrid and the people in the room. So once you go, okay, I need that and I need that how many times a week or how many times a month or a year, then you start to go, okay, where would that be best placed? And then you think about the, you know, the demand side, where are my people and how do I get that there? So then thinking about, okay, you know, what tech will really enable this to work and what's the ROI on that tech? or I'm opening a new office, you go, well, okay, are you, like, why? And what, for what purpose and what are you going to do in that office? Because an answer might be, you actually don't need an office. You might, you know, buy a warehouse and live in half of it. Or there's a lot of ways of innovating once you see your own kind of the way your business runs and the way it works. The other component I would say to that is to add is do a risk matrix, right? I'm my, <laughs> one of my current things and I won't geek out on it too much, but I'm loving risk and risk matrices. Like I've always paid attention to growth, entrepreneur, right? Growth upside. The risks and the risk matrices and then the projects or whatever you do, here we're talking about you know, innovation in, in your business, but these little things, they mitigate against risk, right? And so 
those things that are going to impact your business, like market risk or you know customer demand changing, think about, okay, what would I do if I wanted to reduce that risk? At the same time, you think about your currently what you do, and then your business strategy is probably the third component. But sort of writing those down will go, crap, okay, I have a risk here of customers changing their mind and doing X, Y, Z. My mitigant is I want to be able to meet them in person in this way, which means I have to then be able to be there. Fascinating. I mean, I, I just think about you know our, our setup. So we live up on the northern beaches in, in Sydney, and so we live in Newport. We have our offices, me and my wife. My wife's also an entrepreneur. She's a fashion designer and, and, and manufacturer. And so, you know, from home, from Newport to our offices and, and, and my studio here, and we actually have collaborative workspace. So I've got, you know, the the the, the speakeasy studio here at the back and, and my wife's got the front with, with all her swimwear and resort wear. And then, you know, another two minutes down the road is, um, and that's an Avalon beach. And then another two minutes down the road is my son's school. So like literally, and you know, and we're, we're able to do that whole commute on an electric charge uh, with a car um, from home. So uh, we've got a plug-in electrical uh, or, yeah, PHEV, um, plug-in hybrid EV. So um, I never really need to go into petrol mode. We also don't need to buy, go into Sydney very much either, which is super handy. So, you know, like... I know that's like a kind of a unique environment, but like there's enough going on in Avalon Beach with cafes, you know, um, artists, you know, creative inputs, small businesses, you know, everything we need for, for, for having two young kids, pharmacies, all the rest. Like we really need to go anywhere else. And, you know, I can broadcast from this studio to our clients globally. And so... We look at you know both our you know carbon emissions and, and they're actually you know pretty low, um, and our office space of course is also all just like our home run on renewables, but we we have really thought about that. I mean the only one challenge I know my wife is having a little bit is attracting the best fashion talent, because a lot of them live in Alexandria and you know in the you know inner west or inner east or you know whatever it happens to be. So she's had to think about you know yes do I make my work environment. Um, you know, hybrid because, you know, not everyone's going to want to drive up from, say, Alexandria to Avalon for an hour. Um, yes, you go against traffic, but, um, you know, a, a lot of the other fashion houses are down uh, in that sort of Alexandria um, area in, in Sydney. So, um, so there, there's, you know, there, there's, there's pros and cons with all of these sort of real estate choices, aren't there? There are. And I think one of the Big things is, yes, you can redesign your real estate, right? Or, and, or, it's not, um, or, and you can redesign your business, right? So one of the things in our, in Exomnia, in our data business is we're going to, we're open sourcing um, a lot of the tech so that the data scientists and engineers can develop on top of it and, and the prop tech entrepreneurs and, you know, they can leverage all the, the tools and also the cyber and all this sort of stuff, right? And one of the reasons I really want to do that is to, let the data science creators and the data uh, kind of world, as well as the consultants and everyone else, be able to scale on top of a platform and make a whole bunch of money from anywhere. Because the talent that's sitting in Africa, that's sitting in India, that's sitting, you know, kind of, they're not going to move to Silicon Valley. And so how do we unlock 
that talent, unlock the innovation layers, monetize it um, in a way that's much more fair and equitable and repeatable than some of the freelancer websites, which actually, you know, just end up paying people below what they're worth. How do you actually create those ongoing revenue streams for people to build their businesses on regardless of location? So that's a business design where, you know, my co-founder and I and the founding team um, have gone and actually with Paul, um, Paul Gordon, who's an EO member, he's our um, chief decision officer. So he's running all of our decision modeling on this. But how do you actually build the business from the ground up to enable kind of this idea about work from anywhere and at the same time hold the tension of, yeah, and the co-founder and I and the, the core team all work together a lot in a physical space. So kind of allowing that hyper-personalization for people. I mean, we're touching upon commutes and, and getting to physical spaces. You alluded to the metaverse a little bit earlier on. Um, I talked about the central business district, and of course, we've all become sort of untethered from that notion. But um, we are seeing people go back to work for very specific reasons. And I know even pre-pandemic, there was this notion that, you know, no city should just have one central business district. It shouldn't be a monocentric city. It should be a polycentric city where, you know, within, you know, 15, 20 minutes of any commute, you should have um you know, an entrepreneurial hub or, a, you know, a, a central business district, one of many. Have you got any thoughts on, on that at the sort of, you know, meta level of, of how cities, you know, organically evolve? Uh, any, any, any good examples of cities who have mastered that idea that it's not just about, you know, the, the circular key in, in Sydney, but rather, you know, these polycentric um, CBDs where people can, can migrate to and, and do work? You see over history, you see kind of the centralization, decentralization, centralization, de yeah. and it, it sort of goes with, yes, we want to have different hubs everywhere. And so then you see the corporates go, we're going to put the back office, we're going to put shared services out in you know XYZ, right? And so they move everybody out or they do the, and then they realize they, the trade-off is that while they win in some ways, they lose in other ways. And so then they bring them all back together, right? So it's kind of this swing factor on how it works over time. I think that's changing with the um, flex work. You know, WeWork's one example, we'll ignore kind of how they went um, financially, but the premise and the data and the way that humans work and, and how they can design their environments. And, you know, WeWork's um, work club's another example, you know, with Soren and, that's a lot of the flex because actually it's about, I want access to, I might have a home base in Sydney Circular Key, for example, and I want access to that lungs. I want the flex without having to really, either as an employee go, I'm going to put my thing in Parramatta or as an entrepreneur, you might not want to take that financial risk. And also the, the human talent risks, like you talked about with your wife, we don't really know. We do that. We put all that cost in. Well, what if our people don't want to go there? So I think it's about optionality of the hyper-personalization versus deciding a fixed kind of component of it. And then I get excited about what about the unused space? What about instead of going, these are the eight hubs around a city, actually going, there's a lot of vacant space. And, you know, just like Airbnb, you can also do that for workspace and 
you know, commercial space and retail space and artist space. And while people have tried to do that in some ways, and there's been tech platforms that have attempted it and tried to do it, it is a difficult one because of security and cyber and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But I think that to me is a really interesting is unlocking the spaces in cities that can be flex. I remember this book, uh, The Rise of the Creative Class by by Richard Florida that I'm sure you've come across and, you know, is sort of, I think, a really interesting, you know, tome on, you know, which, which cities and which talent clusters around the world will, will flourish in the future. Um, that would be my little book recommendation for anyone interested in this space. But I'm curious to tap into to your brain. What's what's your favorite book on uh, real estate, the future of cities, smart cities? Anything that you, you you'd recommend EO and uh, EO members and EO future members to to listen to or read? Gosh, there's just, so talking to entrepreneurs. So if I putting on my CEO entrepreneur hat, the book I'm loving recently is called The Art of Insubordination. And it's about how do you create effective change while making it safe for the status quo and the establishment to come with you. And there's a huge amount of examples in the book, everything from Darwin to how he, um, you know, came, had his theories be acceptable versus being burned at the stake, right? So for entrepreneurs looking at this, something like a book like that is where I always go. Like, how do you actually challenge the status quo, build a business that actually makes an impact without getting swallowed by kind of the establishment, that, that sort of thing. Um, so that's one. From a data perspective, there's a beautiful book called Invisible Women, um, which basically talks about how most data that we use to design everything from how a seatbelt should fit to the temperature of our air conditioning is built on men. And because of that, women are often, well, they are often invisible. The achievements have been accredited to men over time. The way we use space, everything about our experience, which is why women, you know, I can speak not all for women, but for myself, you often feel foreign. You're in the built environment and you're like, it's not, it's like shoes that are a size too small, doesn't quite fit you. And so that book I really like about bias and data bias, and this one is particularly about gender, but there's a lot of bias in data that is, you know, not just about gender, but I'm loving that one because from an entrepreneurial standpoint, seeing unserved or underserved communities that aren't reflected by the big end of town or the status quo means we can design products that is kind of like Uber, where there's raging pent up demand. And then as soon as you put the product in the wild, the response is swift and brutal. And so I like that. I like finding the hidden insights and opportunities. So that's a book that I would um, that I would recommend as well. That's a gender one, but there's a lot. I've got to go and pick them up at Bucacino in my built environment here in Avalon Beach uh, very, very soon. What um, what questions should I have asked that I didn't ask or any any burning passions in, the, in this uh, particular UN Sustainable Development Goal? I think for me, it's really about fair access. So if I look at the built environment and I look at who gets to say, who gets to design, who gets to build... Um, who gets to say what prop tech or what entrepreneurial um, answer gets adopted? I think we need to really have fair access around the data as an infrastructure. So if I look at real estate, there's no Bloomberg, there's no 
free or even cheap data sources like we expect in the stock and bond markets and we expect in other areas that let people innovate. If you want to know where to put um, shelters for women that might be undergoing domestic violence, there's no data. You, you have to literally hire data scientists and engineers to cobble together something in order to do a thing. And it's just ridiculous. So for me, it's about how do we make it fair and unlock and disseminate, decentralize all that information so that we can innovate for impact and make it cheap and not hoard it, at, you know, inside of the, um, the hallowed halls of, say, the, you know, the hedge funds um, for financial profit. So I think that to me is the base foundation that then this sustainable development goal and many others as well sits on top of because it's so much easier to deliver, you know, things like safe and affordable housing or affordable transport if you know the landscape. So that's why I'm so passionate about, yeah, the the industry utility of data. And I guess this is where where both the industry utility, but then also, I guess this also comes with some biases and risks as well. Because I know, you know, when you overlay data with a city and, and then business models, I know Amazon, for example, a few years ago were criticized with where they put same day delivery. Uh, and because they'd done some data analytics on, on a city and where their customers were living and X, Y, Z, and, and found that, you know, the only places where they would have same day delivery would be in very white urban environments or where Google started putting in Google Fiber in Kansas. Um, Kansas City, you know, it was on one side of the train tracks and not the other. And of course, that was along very demographic lines as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious just to see if there's, a, if there's a solution to that. I mean, certainly there's the insights, but then of course, you know, those insights need to be interpreted by a human in the loop uh, who, who maybe then also makes equitable and, and just decisions about it. Have you got any, any sort of final reflections on that? I would say it's really important. And the first part of it is just being aware of it and recognizing it. So data is digital exhaustive human behavior for, for a lot of it. And it's a lot often created unintentionally. Just say that again. So data is? Data is the digital exhaust of human behavior. And often it's not created, the data is not created intentionally for the analysis you're going to do. It's created as a byproduct of another thing. So it's a fingerprint. And because of that, even knowing, even deciding what data and how that was collected way back when has bias, let alone which data sets you then merge together. You know, we look at hundreds of data sets might come into one model or one analysis, right? They're all coming in at different times where that's, you know, why you need a data science platform, but that's all pulled together. Then the human goes, which data sets? Then they go, how are we going to weight them? And that's why we're using all Paul's um, amazing stuff out of the London School of Economics and what he does, because that academic rigor and transparency is so important. We can't have black box because you don't know how the humans weighted it, right? Then what you do with that analytics to support your decision is again, human impacted. So because of that, the first thing is just knowing that and going, okay, what are we gonna do? What, what governance do we put in place in each of those steps to go, yeah, actually this population isn't reflected in this data. So that's one. The second one is no black box. So anytime an AI or ML provider comes to you and says, oh, we have a magic black box, no, 
no more black box because we can't trace the transparency. Um, and then the third one is kind of just really honoring, I guess, the whole human experience because you can have a digital divide very easily. If you go you know, on transport, if you all of a sudden take the card and make it an app on your phone and then take out the cards, you might have a positive, sustainable, you know, benefit to the world of less plastic, but now you have to have a phone to play. And so there's a huge amount of, and libraries have been doing this for, you know, years. They have terminals that you can come use as a person if you don't have a computer. And that was a big thing that is a social infrastructure um, for libraries, but it's really just having that academic rigor and kind of real, real respect for how does this, how are we going to build this product? And it might be that you do need to put the delivery mechanism in the rich end of town to start with to fund the fact that you're going to then take a loss on putting it over here. So I don't actually have a problem with if that's the way you're going to roll out the business model, but being transparent about it and then being, I guess, kind and also um, with a lot of integrity and honor and just going, this is what we're doing to fund this. And I know with our data science platform, like most of it will be free and some of it will be expensive and that will be funding the social impact part of the rest of it. And I think being straight about that, people really get it, right? And being able to measure then, okay, here's the non-financial impacts. Here's the financial impacts, the non-financial. And would you rather have all or nothing? And having that open conversation, and like Paul would always say, um, bringing those stakeholders into the room from the other side of town and actually having the conversation um, with honor is the way to go. Fantastic. So data is the digital exhaust of human behavior. I, lo I love that little little quote. Uh, fantastic and, and certainly worthwhile to think about. Joanna, fantastic to have you on Scaling Impact and um, for sharing your your views on the built environment and certainly how we can improve the built environment and, and certainly how entrepreneurs can rethink where they work, how they work, who they attract, and um, certainly making our communities and cities even smarter. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Scaling Impact. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and we'd be super grateful if you leave us a great review. For more information about Scaling Impact, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, or our work on sustainable innovation, please check out EO Sydney online. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on Scaling Impact can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.